We do praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. You are the Lamb of God who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory given to you by your saints in heaven and on earth. For you have died and risen again to open the scroll, to enable us to access right into the holiest places, right into the heart of the triune God, that we might know your love. Help us now pour out your spirit as we approach the reading and preaching of your word that we might not just be those who hear your word, but who respond to it with obedience and with love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Good morning, dear church family. It's so good to see you. I'm loving these cool June mornings. It's glorious. If you weren't with us here uh, last week, we have started a new summer sermon series on the book of James, and we're calling this series of Faith That Matters. And the reason is because James is giving us a vision of faith that is more than just a simple transaction of forgiveness between um, God and humans, but is a faith that is transformational, a faith that makes a difference for every part of our lives, every nook and cranny, big and small. It's a faith that matters. And so he jumps right in in his letter, and the first subject that he addresses is suffering. This is a faith, James believes, that deeply matters when people suffer. So let's go to God's Word, read from James chapter 1, verses 2 through 18. You can find that in your bulletins. Let's read together. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossoms fall, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. A few weeks ago, my family and I visited a lovely place called Cape Charles. I don't know if you've, any of you have been there, but it's, it's a lovely little beachside community that is on this interesting strip, this peninsula of land that, though in Virginia, does never touches uh, the actual state of Virginia, juts down from, I think, Maryland, 
and like a sliver of land in the middle of the bay. Now, there's some gorgeous places there, Cape Charles, uh, Chincoteague. The problem is, is that the only place to get there from the mainland of Virginia is this 17-mile bridge that bridges right across the ocean, right across the bay. Any of y'all ever driven, driven on this bridge? Uh, many of you have. So, you know, the first couple miles uh, feels great. It's cool. You know, wow, I'm driving, you know, in the middle of the ocean. But then after a few miles, you're like, okay, I've had enough. <laughs> let's, let's move on. This is a little scary. And, it, you know, the winds pick up, the gusts come in that little strip between those two bodies of land. And, and actually what I've learned is that truckers, this is a legendary bridge among truckers, and it's actually been known in a couple of occasions to actually take a huge truck and lift it up and dump it right in to the water. Apologies to you if you might be traveling there uh, this afternoon. Don't be afraid. Um, and so this is a problem, right? There's all these beautiful things, all these beautiful beaches, Cape Charles, Chincoteague, all these lovely places, but the only way to get there is across what the truckers call 17 miles of terror. The only way to get there is across the bridge. You know, in this really powerful passage, in many ways, James is saying, God wants to bring transformation in your life. He wants to bring you some glorious things. He wants to give you some good things. But most of the very truly good things in life, you can only access by traveling across the bridge of suffering. It's the only way to get there. The only way to get to the good things that God wants to give you, the work of transformation he wants to produce in you, the only way to get there is across the bridge of the trials. And that's what this theme is about. This is what we're going to talk about today, that transformation always travels through trials. Transformation always travels through trials. Trials are one of the greatest opportunities that God offers to us to experience the power of the transformative work he wants to produce. So let's just jump right in. He talks in this section, the great theme of this section is trials. Now, what kind of trials is James speaking about? Well, let's talk a little bit about the original context of the readers who were just hearing this word from James. You know, these, this was a group of first century Jewish Christians who were scattered throughout the Roman world at that time, living in pretty hostile environments. And if you read through the book of James as a whole, which I encourage you to do, you'll see that the degree of trials and suffering that they were undergoing were quite various and vast. Um, they were dealing with poverty and persecution, injustice, sickness, conflict, loneliness, sadness, all kinds of things. So much so that James actually is not naming any one specific area of suffering or any one specific trial. He actually says here in verse two, you can see whenever you face trials of what? Many kinds. Uh, some translations say various kinds. Uh, the Greek word means variegated or of many uh, 31 Baskin-Robbins flavors, if you will, of suffering. There are many different forms of suffering. He is not speaking of any particular one in this case. And so in some ways, this is a great encouragement to us because many times when you suffer or you go through a trial, you feel like it is exceptional. You feel like it's unusual, that it's one of a kind, that no one else is suffering the way that you are. And yet James says, all manner of suffering, those who go through trials, I'm speaking to you. Do you have trouble with your health? Are you dealing with cancer, sickness, illness, chronic pain? I'm talking to you, he says. That is one among the various forms of suffering. 
Are you dealing with relationship problems? Are you, troubling, are you troubled with a difficult marriage? Are you having you know, problems with some kid who's acting the fool? You know, do, is, is that included? Yes, that is included in the variegated trials that he speaks of. Are you dealing with depression? Are you dealing with anxiety? Are you dealing with some sort of mental illness? Are you struggling with some sort of problem uh, with a colleague at work? Are you struggling with vocational uh, misdirection? Are you, kids, are you dealing with a problem or a struggle with a friend or your brother or your sister or at school? You know, all kinds, he says, all of us. And notice he says, not if you face trials of many kinds, but when. He is not speaking to those rare and unfortunate souls who happen to have and be born into a difficult life. He is speaking to all human beings. Being a Christian does not protect you from this. If anything, it intensifies trouble, as we'll find in the book later to come. But he says, if you are a human being and you are living in between the times, between the already and the not yet, between what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and what he will one day do when he brings shalom, if you live between the times, then this is what your life will be one set of trials after another. As in the words of the poet, Kristen Rossetti, does the road wind uphill all the way? Yes, to the very end. So isn't that encouraging word here today, friends, for you to hear? Uh, It actually is encouraging, and I'm actually glad um, that some of you young people are here, some of you kids and teens and young adults are here, because it is absolutely vital that you understand this when you are young. We live in a culture that wants to pretend that a life without pain is actually possible, but it is not. And the sooner that you can learn to deal with the reality of the brutality of the life that we live in, the sooner you will be able to be the kind of person that is not undone and undercut by suffering when it comes as it will come for you. And so he's giving us a gift. James is giving us a gift that we might be equipped to deal with the variegated trials when they come upon us. So what does he say? He says, verse two, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. (laughs) Consider it pure joy. Pure joy, friends. What in the world is he saying? He sounds like a crazy person. Does he not? Consider it pure joy when you suffer. This makes no sense. Now, I want to be clear what James is saying. He's not saying that your natural emotional response to trials and suffering should be happiness and joy. Oh, you say my house got foreclosed? Hallelujah. Thanks be to Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you should be this sort of warped personality, masochistic sort of mindset that delights in pain, that goes after it, and that has an emotional response to suffering as if you were a person of joy. No, that's not what he's saying. He's not talking about an emotional response. He's talking about the attitude of the mind. He says, count it pure joy. Some translations say, consider it joy. The Greek word is, be of the mindset or be of the opinion. There is a new attitude that you can take and the way that you approach your trials that can transform the way that you navigate through them. Suffering is not good. I want you to hear that because I know that there are a lot of you who are suffering right now. And I want you to hear it. Suffering is not good in itself. It never is. It is a product of the evil one who has shattered this good world that God has made. Suffering is not good. And yet, in God's providence, holiness, grandeur, and greatness, he is able to take suffering and employ it and use it to actually produce the kind of fruit that he wants to see in his people, using it for his good ends and to bring him glory. That's what God can do. 
So what does he produce in us through suffering? We'll look at verse four. He says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be what? Mature and complete. That's what God wants for you. He wants to make you whole. He wants to make you complete. He wants to take human beings who are shattered and broken by the fall, who are not the people that we were meant to be, and he wants to make us whole. He wants to complete us. He wants to make us the very best, glorious versions of ourselves. And don't you want that for yourself? I mean, don't you know that you are not the person that you could be, that you are meant to be, that you should be, and yet God's vision for you is that you would become that person, that you would be made whole, the glorious version of yourself, and God wants to make you into that. That's his vision. And one of the great tools that God uses to produce that person in you is suffering. Suffering in trials. Suffering, I know this sounds a little weird, but suffering is an opportunity to actually gain the most valuable thing on earth, to be made whole, to be made like Christ. Suffering is an opportunity to gain the most valuable thing on earth. Transformation always travels through trials. Well, how does that happen? Well, let's talk about that. First of all, when you suffer, and some of you will know this if you are, have been a person who has suffered, is that trials expose in you what isn't there. Look at verse three. He uses this metaphor of testing. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. He's speaking of, uh, he's using a metaphor of, of uh, the refining of metals. Have you ever seen that on, maybe on TV or down at Colonial Williamsburg or something when they, they actually take a, a piece of metal ore out of the ground and they they engage it in a, what's called a smelting process where they put it into a furnace and they apply tremendous heat. And what happens is, is that all of the, the worthless metal, the, the, the dross, it either oxidizes or it turns into this sort of muddy slag and then it just drops off. And what's left is this glorious, pure gold, glorious silver. And that's the metaphor that James is employing. He's saying that, that trials are like God doing that in us. It's a smelting process in which what is worthless is burned off and then what is true, what is true in our faith actually remains. And for many of us, that means that it exposes the true nature of our faith beneath. You know, I know that you've probably heard me tell this story before, but the staff encouraged me to tell it again because I do think it's important for our community to hear. About 12 years ago, um, you, Third Church, sent me to help start a new church in the east end of Richmond, Eastern Fellowship, and so as I was, I was co-planning that, that church with my friend and mentor, Don Coleman, and it was a very, very difficult thing to do. We were trying to do a difficult project. Um, it was very challenging. We were going through a very difficult season. Um, many of my own inadequacies as a leader and a pastor were being exposed. Uh, there was a lot of conflict in the congregation, and I was a mess. I, in the words, one therapist told me at the time, you have very little resilience. <laughs> and I began to realize that uh, full-fledged at that moment, that I was freaking out. I was a stress case. I didn't know what to do. And in one particular occasion, I was with Don, and I was sharing with him the burdens and the stress that I was feeling, and he stopped me. And he said, can I, can I ask you a very honest question? I said, okay. And he said, Corey, have you ever in your entire life ever had to live by faith? 
and it stung. I mean, thankfully, we know words, wounds uh, from a friend can be trusted. But it stung because I knew that, you know, with all, I realized at that moment, with all of my knowledge and all of my schooling, you know, Princeton Seminary and studies and all this, and with all of the, I knew how to preach, I knew how to start a church, I knew how to run a service, and yet all of these privileges that I had that Pastor Don, who grew up in the housing projects of the East End, had none of, and yet here I am being exposed in that moment that what I was truly trusting in was not the Almighty God, but in myself, my own competency, my own abilities, which were deeply failing me. And this is, what, this is what James means when he talks about doubt here in verse 6. He's not speaking about those who struggle with doubt in the midst of suffering. What he's clearly talking about, we see in verse 8, is double-mindedness. He's talking about people who say with their lips that they're trusting in God, and yet they go actually trusting in someone or something else. And that's what that trial revealed. It revealed my own double-mindedness that I was saying that I was one who trusted in the Father, but in reality, I trusted in my own competency. And I'm so grateful for that trial. I'm so grateful that it exposed what was missing in me because it gave me the opportunity to truly take a risk and learn what it means to be a person who lives by faith, which I've been exploring for the last 12 years. So trials expose in you what isn't there, but they also produce in you what needs to be there, like a fertilizer producing a harvest in a field, trials produce in us what is lacking, what is incomplete to bring about the complete work that God wants to do in us. So that verse four, we are not lacking anything. I'll say it again. Transformation travels through suffering. There's certain things that you can only access across the bridge of the trial. There's certain qualities in you that can only be produced until you suffer. Things like humility. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that it was his thorn, his trial, that decimated his pride and taught him how to be a person who depends on grace alone. You cannot learn to be humble unless you come to the end of yourself and learn that you are a weak and dependent person reliant on grace alone. There's no way to get to humility except across the bridge of suffering. You know, freedom, personal freedom. You know, some of us believe that, uh, that there are certain things that we need in life, that we desperately need, and suffering makes you lose that thing that you desperately need, and then you get across the bridge and you realize that you're still alive, you're still there, you're putting one step in front of the other, and you realize that the thing that you thought you so desperately needed, you can actually live without. It gives you an interior ballast, a spiritual freedom. Suffering produces compassion. It's only after you suffer can you learn to be an empathetic person for those who, for those who suffer. It's, it's only because of my own 20-year battle with depression that I've come to be a person who has real empathy for those who suffer from mental illness. It's only because I had a mother who suffered four years from cancer that I know what it means to come alongside those who suffer with cancer. It, only, it is only in the, in the the field of sorrows that the fruit of empathy is produced that we can offer to others. And not only that, but faith itself. Faith is a muscle that needs to be strengthened and it cannot be strengthened unless it faces resistance. You're not gonna get ripped by eating Cheetos, you know? You need resistance, just like a muscle. And that's what faith needs. It needs a, the pushback of trials to make it strong. And so all of these things, faith and compassion and freedom and humility, all of these things can only be given to you in the face of suffering. So suffering can give you almost all the traits that you need to be useful to others. 
I love this quote from A.W. Tozer, if you could bring it up there on the screen. He says, the fallow field is smug, contented, protected from the shock of plow and the agitation of the harrow. Safe and undisturbed, it sprawls lazily in the sunshine. The picture of sleepy contentment. Uh, uh, Tozer is using this as a metaphor to describe the person who's actually in a really good place, who doesn't suffer, who's not going through anything difficult. They're like this lovely field, just basking in the sunshine. And you might be thinking, I'll sign up for that. That sounds like a good life. But do you really want that? Haven't you known someone who's never suffered? And you see the shallowness. You see the lack of wisdom. You see the lack of empathy. This kind of field has consequences as, as Tozer goes on. He says it is paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it see the miracle of growth. Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor see the, want, the wonders of bursting seed, nor the beauty of ripening grain. Fruit it can never know because it is afraid of the plow and the harrow. It's only the disturbed field, the broken field, the field that is ripped and torn apart by hoe and plow. Only that field knows the beauty of life and the glory of the harvest. As Tozer finally says, nature's wonders follow the plow. Transformation always travels through trials. Nature's wonders only follow the plow. But here's what we've got to say. Let's not be naive. This does not happen automatically. It is not as if you go through a trial, you suffer, and you automatically come out this mature person, like a vending machine, you know. That just doesn't happen. In fact, I can say this from being a pastor now for, you know, a decade and a half or more, whatever it is, <laughs> that for every one person who goes through suffering and comes out the other side more mature and complete, there's 10 more who go through suffering and come outside worse than they were before. To use another one of my favorite analogies, you drop an egg into a boiling water and it gets hard. You drop a carrot into that same water and it gets soft. Two people can get can come out very differently dropped in the same, the same veil, the same trial, the same suffering. And that's why I'm so grateful that he says in verse 13 through 15, he begins to talk about temptation. In fact, it's interesting because the word testing in verse 2 is actually the same Greek word of temptation in verse 13, because I think what he's suggesting is that testing almost always is the occasion for temptation. Can I say that again? Say that again. Testing is almost always the occasion for temptation. Those of you who have gone through trials know what I'm talking about. You're tempted to self-pity, to being self-absorbed with yourself and your own problems and your pain. You're tempted to bitterness, being stored up with bitterness and envy towards those who aren't going through what you're enduring. You're tempted perhaps to self-medication, to medicate yourself with alcohol or substance or some, some other uh, impetuous action to numb your pain. Or maybe you're just tempted to lash out at God, like James suggests in verse 13, to say, look what God did to me. Look what God has done. Look how he has abandoned me. Look how he's not even there at all. No, suffering can actually make you much worse than you were before, which is why James says in verse 12, blessed are those who persevere because he knows just how hard it is to endure suffering without falling into temptation and sin. So what are we gonna do, family? That suffering's coming, the trial's coming. What will we do? What can we hold on to? so that we're the kind of people who come out the other side mature and complete. Well, let's just end this time by talking about a few practical tips that James gives, tool, tools in our toolbox, if you will, to help us become the mature and complete people he wants us to be in suffering. The first is this. 
Remind yourself every day of the purpose of your life. Remind yourself every day. I don't know if y'all have uh, realized this or not. Some of you older saints perhaps have, but we live in a society that is the first society literally in the history of the world that has no capacity for understanding the redemptive character of suffering. That has no concept of the purpose of suffering. We, we live in a society that is shaped by the dominant secular worldview of material secularism. And more than any other worldview in the history of humanity, whether pre-Christian worldviews, Christian worldviews, Buddhism, Hinduistic, Islamic worldviews, whatever it may be, secularism, the dominant worldview of our age, has no capacity to understand the redemptive purposes of suffering. We no longer see it as a pathway for cultivating wisdom or character. In our de facto purpose of life in a secular society is happiness. The purpose of life, happiness. In fact, we have an entire society in the United States of America that is built around a social experiment for the pursuit of happiness. And so if you consider happiness to be your great aim and purpose for life, then you will have no capacity to understand any redemptive quality of suffering at all. It will be completely meaningless, a harsh obstacle that stands in the path of what you want to be happy and comfortable. And Christian friend, I want you to not be naive and think that you are not diluted and polluted by the worldview that we are living in like a fish in the water. We don't see the way that it's infecting us. And I am telling you, if you buy into this myth, if you buy into this idea that you are here in order to experience happiness and comfort, then you will not have the capacity to suffer any degree of pain. And so what do you do in the midst of a trial? I mean, you can literally do this. You can wake up and say to yourself, the purpose of my life is not to be happy. The purpose of my life is not to be comfortable. The purpose of my life is to be like Christ. The purpose of my life is to live for the glory of God by becoming a lover of God and neighbor. That is the purpose of my life. And I don't know how, and I don't know why, and I don't know what God is doing, but somehow in the midst of this trial, I know this is true, that God is using this suffering in order to produce in me the great purpose that he has for my life. And I'm not telling you that I'll just like automatically change your attitude overnight. So like your car breaks down and you're like, hallelujah, I'm becoming like Jesus. That's, that's not how this works. Instead, the more you put on this attitude of your mind, reminding yourself of what's true, very gradually, even throughout the trial, you become a person who has a little bit more grit, a little bit more perseverance, a little bit more stick a little less despondency, and a little more capacity for hope. Remind yourself of the purpose of your life. That suffering is not meaningless. God is refining you and producing something beautiful in you. So that's one little tip. A second tip is verse 5 and 8. Admit your helplessness and seek wisdom. You know, people love quoting this passage about wisdom, but I think many people ignore that the context of this, these words are the context of suffering. You know, I've seen, as a pastor, I see a lot of people who are in very dark places, and they're all very different, but one common denominator in them all is that a lot of times suffering people are very disoriented. They don't know where to go. They don't know what steps to take. They don't know what to do. Life feels like it's been turned upside down. You don't know which way is up. You relate to that, what I'm talking about? And, and so what James says here, and I love what he says, he, he actually gives us permission to be completely confused. He says, when you suffer, he says, you're not supposed to know what to do. He assumes you won't know what to do. And when he says in those moments, don't just try to 
be a self-reliant person to grit your teeth and push through and prove yourself to God as some great Christian. No, he says, admit your weakness and your need. Admit to God that you don't know how to do life on your own and you don't have the capacity to do it without him. And cry out to God for wisdom. Say, God, I don't know what to do. I need help. So can we be those kinds of people who when we face trials, don't try to just push through it, but we cry out to God in our weakness and need and then we own that with each other as well. Let's not be this kind of silly West End church that puts on this facade of perfection with each other. That is rubbish, friends. Let's own the fact that we are people in profound need who cannot do life on our own without Jesus Christ and help each other be those who cry out to God for wisdom and God promises to give it generously and to not find fault in us. He does not pick at us or critique us about our failings. He gives generously. And I'm not saying that you'll suddenly know what to do overnight, but as you seek his wisdom, as you confess your tremendous need to your friends, as you talk to wise mentors or counselors, as you, as you learn about God and his word and his promises, you slowly begin to make your way through the darkness until at the very end, you look back and you say, I'm not sure how it happened, but somehow the Lord took me through. The dawn does come. The dawn really does come. So admit your helplessness and seek wisdom. Third, don't compare yourself. Remember who you are. I love this in verse 9 to 11. He brings up these issues of poverty and, and wealth, which seems a little out of place. But the truth is, is that many of the people who were suffering in James's community were people who were suffering from poverty. And they were tempted to compare themselves, especially to the rich and the powerful and the secure, and then to feel bad about themselves. And that's a very common temptation, that when we suffer, we're very tempted to compare ourselves to other people who look like their life is going a whole lot better, who they're very secure, and put together while your life is falling apart. And then you fall into envy and bitterness and all the rest. So what James says is don't do it. You know, you might be at the, at the end of a day after a really long, hard day and you're going through a really difficult thing and uh, you, know, you, you fall into bed and you get on your phone and you start flipping through Instagram or something and all the people, all these snapshots of these beautiful people and these beautiful families you know, all the marriages seem perfect and all the kids seem delightful and everybody seems to perpetually be on vacation. And, you know, and everybody's having fun and counting their money and, you know, all, all that stuff. And then here's you and you're just lying in your bed and you haven't even taken off your pajamas and you've just streamed a whole season of something on Netflix and eaten a gallon of ice cream and you're just lying in your bed and you're thinking to yourself, okay, here's me and here's all these people. Come on, tell me you haven't done I mean, whatever your version of Instagram is, you know what I mean? Which we know as an aside is a direct cause of depression. So James says, don't do it. Don't compare yourself. If you find yourself in a place of tremendous lack and need, don't compare yourself to other people. Instead, he says, verse 9, take pride in your high position. Huh? He's saying, remember who you are in the gospel. You might feel like a nobody in the world, but you are a somebody in the kingdom of God. You might feel like you're down at the bottom in the world, but you are at the top in the family of Jesus. Remember who you are. Remember that you have the Father's love. You have the Son's inheritance. You have the Spirit's deposit. You have the riches of heaven. Remember who you are. Don't look to others. Look to Christ. Remember who you are in him. On the other hand, he says, if you're high 
If you happen to be one of those rare people in our world who are actually in a place of great security and comfort and who have no problems and are dealing with a lot of, of, of security in your life right now, he says, watch out. Watch out, friend. It'll all be flipped in a moment. It'll be taken away in an instant. And so instead, what you should do, he says, is boast in your humiliation, verse 10. Remember your profound need for Jesus and his grace. Remember that apart from grace, you are a sinner in a spiritual gutter. Remember, do not boast in your riches. Do not boast in your security. Do not boast in how well your life is going in your circumstances. Instead, remember that without grace, you have nothing. And so remember your true identity. If low, then remember your high in Christ. If high, remember your lowness in Christ. Don't look to others, look to Christ. Finally, he says, verse 17, focus on God's goodness. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. I had the rare uh, occurrence last week to sit in my back garden and read a book and for a couple of hours and the, and the, and the sun kept shifting, or the, sorry, the shadows kept shifting. The world was actually moving, not the sun. I've learned that. <laughs> the shadows kept shifting and I kept having to move my seat because all the light and shadows kept shifting around me and when we suffer, that's the way the world feels. It feels like everything is shifting and there's no stability and there's nowhere we can really anchor ourselves. And James says, yes, it feels like that when you suffer, but God is not like that. God is the sun himself who does not change. He keeps on radiating. He keeps on shining. Even when there's cloud cover, he's always there bursting through, enveloping you with his love. He is the great anchor, the great rock, the great stability that holds you firm in a world of shifting shadows. And if you have any doubt, look to Jesus, the one who has guaranteed the love of God for us. Do you remember what our theme is for today, friends? Transformation always travels through trials and Jesus Christ himself has proven its veracity. Jesus traveled through trials and came out the other side to offer us transformation. Jesus traveled through suffering and came out the other side to offer us salvation. God took the most horrific event in the history of the world, the execution of the Messiah, the Son of God, and used it to bring about the redemption of you and me, the redemption of all things. And if God can do that, in and through Jesus Christ, in this crucifixion of God, there is no little crucifixion in your own life where God cannot do the same. He will always bring forth resurrection. And so when you face trials, don't just grit your teeth. Don't numb your pain. Instead, say to yourself, I can persevere because Christ has persevered for me. I can endure because Christ has endured for me. I can hold fast because Christ has held fast for me. Because of Christ, you can be certain of the unchanging, never stopping, always enduring, ever upholding love of God that will, I promise, carry you through this trial that you're in and not only carry you through the trial, will carry you all the way into the new creation where there'll be no more death or sorrow and tears will fly away. As Teresa of Avila said, that new creation will make even the most miserable life feel like one bad night in a seedy hotel. That's where we're going. So hold on, suffering friend. Persevere, brother, sister, enduring the trial. Keep going. Look to Christ. He will turn you into gold.
Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this amazing truth that is really just totally befuddling to the society that we live in, that there could be any real meaning in suffering. And yet because of Jesus, because of the gospel, it's true. And so I do pray for those who suffer here today even, that they would take solace and comfort in these promises of God given to us through this book, and that we would be those who persevere and endure in the midst trials, trusting that you are bringing maturity and completeness that we need. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.